If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to open them with me to the book of John, John chapter 21, John chapter 21, and we will get there eventually, but we've got some opening things that we need to discuss and talk about a little bit. For those of you that are just joining us here for the first time this morning, uh, we are in a series throughout this whole summer that we have simply called Shore Points, Lessons from the Beach, and in this series, we are sharing various stories that took place on a beach or on a shore, because as you know, uh, there are great stories, many great stories from the Bible that actually occurred on the beach or on the shore, and we are just simply trying to gather some life lessons from those stories and apply them to our own lives so that we might grow and mature and develop in our walk with Jesus Christ. You know, as I was contemplating our time together here today over the last several weeks, the thought that occurred to me was simply that it is impossible, impossible to overstate the significant role that love plays in the life of the true disciple of Jesus Christ. It is impossible for someone to come to me or to any other preacher of the gospel, teacher of the word of God, and say, you know, pastor, you're spending way too much time talking about love. We need to move on to deeper things. We need to move into some uh, more meaty things. You're spending way too much time talking about this thing, love. That is an impossibility for a true disciple of Jesus Christ. It is impossible to overstate the significant role that love plays in the life of the true disciple of Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus actually said it's not enough for you to love me in word, you must also love me in deed. You must love me in action. And the greatest way that you can demonstrate your professed love for me is by keeping my commandments, obeying my commandments, being submitted to my authority. When Jesus was questioned about what the greatest commandment under the old covenant was, Jesus was very quick to remind them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then I love these final words. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Basically, what Jesus was saying at that moment is, you can summarize the entire Old Testament covenant with these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. In other words, the entire Old Testament law, and there were over 600 laws in the Old Covenant, and all of it can be summarized in this. Love God supremely, love your fellow man equally. Jesus said all that is written in the Old Testament can summarize up in those two. You know, it was funny because the Apostle Paul, a number of years later, would actually reduce it down to one. In Romans chapter 13 and verse 10, he said that love is the fulfillment of the law. 
So the Apostle Paul said that all of the laws of God, all of the commandments of God can be summed up in one word, love. So with that in mind, it is impossible for anyone to say you're overstating the importance of love in the life of a believer because as far as Christ is concerned, and you're going to see it more in a moment, the defining characteristic of a true disciple of Jesus Christ is a unique Love for God and for one another. A love you cannot find anywhere else in the world except in those who follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So that raises some very important questions. The most important would be how do you define love? How do you actually go about defining love? And many of you know our definition. It's one of the core values here, disinterested benevolence. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But how would you explain love to someone? If someone were to come to you and say, you're a disciple of Christ, or at least you profess to be a disciple of Christ, and I hear a lot about love, can you tell me what that means? How would you respond? How would you go about defining what is unique about the love of those who truly are disciples of Christ? That's a moving target in the 21st century. Because in the 21st century, everybody talks about love. Even people who are atheists talk about love and the need for love. With all that is going on in this country right now, you hear everyone, politicians, atheists, special interest group, all saying, all we need is love. Love. Love is all you'll ever need. I mean, that's all that they ever talk about is we need to love one another. And men and women will even justify their behavior in saying, Jesus only told us to love one another. I mean, you hear it all the time. So What makes the love we talk about as believers unique to the way the world speaks of love? Because we certainly know that the love of Christ does not justify any behavior. The love of Christ actually restrains the heart of man. To the true disciple of Jesus Christ, you know that love is not a feeling. You know that love is not an emotion. You know that love is not a chemical reaction. Love is not something that you turn on and you turn off, that you fall into and you fall out of. That's not love. Love, as we understand it, is a choice. Love is a choice to be emptied of all selfish motive. It is a choice to be emptied of all selfish interest. It is a choice to be focused in exclusively on the interests of God first and then the interest of my fellow man second. That real godly love is to empty myself of any need to have my particular wants met. And it is to use all of the resources that God has entrusted to me to be a blessing first to God and then to my fellow man. That love is emptied of all selfish interest, selfish motivation, selfish desire, and is exclusively selfless. For God first and then for my fellow man. And that is reflected all through the New Testament. You know, I was thinking about it this past week. The Greeks were an interesting people. And many of you know that most of the, the language and even philosophy that we have today was set by the Greeks so many thousands of years ago. The Greeks were very observant people. The Greeks studied people. They studied philosophy. And sometimes they made great gains in philosophy. Sometimes they had great drawbacks, no doubt about it. But 
The Greeks, when they studied society, when they, st- when they studied relationships within a, uh, a culture, within a society, they recognized that there wasn't just this one thing called love. They recognized in studying humanity that there were various expressions and demonstrations and levels of love. And so the Greeks didn't just have one word like we do, love. They actually had several words that they would use to define the love that they were observing. For instance, they saw the special bond that existed between friends. And they said that is a unique love and so they called it phileo love. It's where we get our English word Philadelphia. And all of us here know that Philadelphia means brotherly love. And so they recognized that there was a very unique bond among friends that transcended any biological relationship. It was a special bond that existed among them that was unique to any other relationship. And so they said, that love we are calling a brotherly love, a friendship love, a philea love. But then as they continued to study society, they saw another unique love that was found within the family. They said there's a unique love within the family. They called it storge love. Storge love is a family love. It is a love that parents have for their children, that children have for their parents. It is a love that siblings have among each other. It's the love that you experience with um, sons and daughters and mothers and fathers and cousins and nieces and nephews and aunts and uncles. It's that very unique fondness and affection that you find among family members who are journeying through life together. So they called it storge love. But then as they even began to examine further the family, they recognized that there was an entirely different level of intimacy within the family that was there between the mother and the father, the husband and the wife, the male and the female, and they saw it as a more passionate, more intimate, even physical and sexual love that they called eros love, eros love. It's where we get our English word erotic And before it was hijacked by deviant men and women and dragged through the mud to justify any sexual activity, it was actually a beautiful relationship between, again, a husband and a wife, a mother and a father, a male and a female that was always in the mind of God meant to be practiced within the protective custody of a marital covenant. It was called eros love. And so the Greeks understood as they looked at society that love is very important to all relationships, but there is a different level of love in the friendship than there is in the family, but even within the family there is a different level of intimacy within Eros. And so they kept it really straight, but believe it or not, there was one other kind of love that they discerned, and one, quite frankly, that was uniquely found among followers of Jesus Christ in the first century. I love it. The Greeks looked at society and said, you know what, there is a love that exists that we can't find anywhere else. There is a unique love that rises above brotherly love, that rises above family love, that even rises above erotic love. There is a love that we have never seen anywhere else except Within the community of Christ's followers, they had a unique word for that love. And many of you know it. It was called agape. 
agape love. And the Greeks understood agape love as the selfless love. They saw it as the self-denying love. They saw it as the self-sacrificial love. It was the disinterested benevolence, that disinterested love that we talk about often. And if you've never heard that before, it doesn't mean that I'm not interested in you. It literally, when you say disinterested, means that I'm emptied of myself. That I am emptied of my interests and I am empty of my desires and my motives and all that I can get out of it. And I see all that I possess as belonging to God and for his glory first and foremost. And then it is to be bestowed upon you. And I don't care if I get anything in return. I'm not doing it for that. I'm doing it because it is the right and moral thing to do. And the Greeks said, we can't find that kind of love anywhere in the world except among those who follow Jesus Christ. To the Greeks, they saw agape love as the highest, as the most noble love that existed because they believe it defined God's love and the love that was found in those who truly followed the God of Christianity. And that would actually go to confirm what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 13 and verse number 35. Remember this? He said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love, agape, for one another. Jesus said, what will distinguish you from everyone else on this planet is the way you disinterestedly love one another. Not the fact that you profess that you are a Christian, not the fact that you go to church on Sunday, not the fact that you clap your hands and lift your hands and shout really loud during the worship service, not that you go around telling everybody that you are a child of God and I am a Republican or I am a Democrat or whatever. He says the defining characteristic of a true disciple of Jesus Christ is that you don't live for yourself anymore, you live for the glory of God and you live for your fellow man. That is the distinguishing characteristic. He says, you cannot find that love anywhere else except among those who follow Jesus Christ. You know, I read this definition of agape love the other day that I said, man, that is worth my repeating here today. It says simply this, agape love, and think of this, agape love is unmotivated in the sense that it is not contingent on any value or worth in the object of love. Now just let that settle into your heart for a minute. Agape love is unmotivated in the sense that it is not contingent upon any value or worth in the object of love. Now some of you may say, well, what are you saying? Or what is that person that wrote this saying? What he's saying is most of the time before we ever decide if we are going to love, show mercy, ask for or receive forgiveness, whatever it might be, before we ever show any kind of benevolent love or act of love to anyone, the first thing we do is say, are they worth it? What, what value? Do they have any value, any worth that would motivate me to actually bestow upon them love, mercy, and grace? Or we would ask, what value am I going to get out of it in doing it? 
Is this going to bring me joy? Is it going to bring me happiness? So typically, when we look at someone and we try to decide what we're going to do, it's always based upon either a value that is in them or what I get out of it myself. Agape love is totally unmotivated by that. It is spontaneous. It is heedless. In other words, I don't have to wait for somebody to cry out to me. For it does not determine beforehand whether love will be effective or appropriate in any particular case. In other words, I do it without ever thinking what is going to come out of it. I'm going to do it because it is the right thing to do. And by the way, that is why you're saved today. Because God loved you with that kind of love. Can you say amen? God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you and for me. We had no moral value. We had no moral worth. We certainly were not crying out to God for salvation. But 2,000 years ago, he came to man, emptying himself of all selfish desire focused exclusively on using the resources of his eternal existence to save anyone who would call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Can you give God the praise for that today? Come on, that is amazing love. Come on, that's enough to get a shout out of you today. He loves you that much. You didn't earn salvation. You didn't deserve salvation. There was nothing in you that God said, wow, i got to save them. No, no. He says, I'm going to save them because it's the right thing to do. And this is the love that we are called to have for God and we are called to have for one another. The same love. And can I tell you that it is the only love that is acceptable to God. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's the only love that is acceptable to God. The only love. All of the other forms and expressions of love we just talked about, though they have a part in our life, they are not acceptable to God. The love that he looks for is agape love. Because in every scripture that talks about our love for God and our love for one another, it is always, always, always agape love. If you agape love me, you will keep my commandments. You will empty yourself of what you want to do and you will follow me. If you love one another, you will not see all of your resources as a blessing to you, but you will see all of your resources as a way to bless others. Now that is not to say that the other forms of expressions of love are not... present within the lives and relationships of believers, because certainly they are. But what it is to say is that all of the other forms and expressions of love are built upon the foundation of agape love and spring forth from agape love. This is what he's saying. Yes, all of the other expressions of love are in the life of the believer, but they all come out of that disinterested love that is unique to the believer in Jesus Christ. In other words, for the Christian in brotherly love, I have not focused on what my friend can do for me, but what I can do for my friend. 
in my family love, I'm not focused on what my family can do for me, but what I can do for my family. In marital love, I'm not focused on what my marriage or my wife or my husband can give to me, but what I can give to my husband or my wife. It is in, even in my relationship with God, it's not focused upon what God can do for me, but rather what I can give back to God Almighty. I am dying to myself and I am living for the glory of God, for the blessing of my fellow man. And that is what's messing up so many Christians in their relationships is because they still are stuck in, well, what about me? Does anybody remember what Jesus said? If anyone, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. It's not about you. It's not about me. It is about the glory of God, and it is about the building up of my fellow man. You tell me a marriage that could not survive under that condition. Can you imagine a husband and wife getting up every morning and saying, what do you want to do today, honey? I don't care. What do you want to do today, honey? And everybody is just deferring. Honey, I want to, I, I just, I'm just going to live for you the rest of my days. That is the kind of love that we're discussing today. And it's the only love that is acceptable to God. And it's for that reason that we must always be testing our hearts, testing our motives to see that this love is growing, that it is spreading, that it's taking hold of us, and that we are not falling away from it, lest at any time we find ourselves merely possessing a fondness and an affection for God and not a true love for Him. I have no doubt that the majority of you today have an affection for God. You're fond of Him. I do suspect that many of you do not love him. So I'm going to ask you, and please, in fear of this moment, don't answer this quickly. Do you love the Lord? Really think about that. Do you agape and again, don't be quick to answer that because, listen, it's very easy to just quickly blurt out, yes, of course I do. But it's even easier to deceive yourself. Remember what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. He says, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your patience and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and you have patience and you have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, wow. You know what that word means? It means in spite of all the things that I have just commended you of, I cannot overlook this. that you have left your first love. You have left your first agape. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I, I, those are just frightening words to me. Because what basically Jesus was saying to them is, hey, listen, Ephesus... Our relationship has come to a standstill. 
We are not progressing anymore. I've, I've waited patiently as long as I can, but now this situation is critical. We cannot move forward anymore because this has got to be dealt with once and for all. Because even though it's true that you are patient and you are persevering and you are working and laboring hard for me and you're not growing weary in the process, the reality is that you're doing it all calling me your friend calling me a family member, but that selfless, self-denying, self-sacrificing love is empty. How many of you know that though it is important what we do, it is even more important why we're doing it? You can do all of the right things and still do it with the wrong motive. And that is what Jesus is saying to them. He's saying, listen, I'm not denying that you work. And you work hard. And I'm not denying that you labor and that you labor hard. And I'm not denying that you cannot stand evil. And I know that you test every person that says they're apostle to make sure that they're apostle. You can't stand false doctrine. I know that you persevere. I know that you're patient. I know that you're working. You're not growing weary and giving up. But I cannot overlook that you're doing it all for yourself. That you're doing it because you're afraid. If you don't, you're not going to get all the blessings that I have to give you. You're doing it out of a sense of duty, of obligation. It's all about what you can get out of it. It's motivated out of selfishness. It's been a long time since you just did it because you love me. Because it's the right thing to do. And unfortunately, until you repent and go back to that agape love, I'm going to have to cast you away. If it can happen to Ephesus, folks, it can happen to us. Say amen or oh my. I mean, it's, if it happened then, it can happen to us. Where we can get so caught up in doing all the things that we're supposed to do that we forgot that we're doing it for us. Just take tithing for a moment. What is motive? There's some of you that you tithe faithfully, but you don't tithe just because you just genuinely love the Lord. You're afraid if you don't tithe that God's going to pull the, the rug out from under your life, that all the blessings won't be poured out. That is a poor motivation, folks. We are to be emptied of all selfish interest. We're to be emptied of all selfish desires and just simply do it because that is the right thing to do. And this is exactly what happened to Peter. You know, many people have failed God throughout Scripture. You know that as well as I do, but Peter's failure was epic. I mean, this was an epic fail. Let's, this would be on YouTube today. I mean, it was an epic fail. And we know that. There's no other word for the failure of Peter. It was just a devastating, epic failure. And it was epic because it was underscored by the fact that he made this bold confession of love for Jesus Christ just hours before he denied him. You know the story. He was gathered with all of the other disciples in the upper room with Jesus to celebrate the Passover feast on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And Jesus has just stood before them and he has said to them, listen, all of you are going to be offended because of me tonight and you're going to forsake me. And Peter answered. He stands up in front of everybody and he says, even if all these others are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Can you imagine the audacity of that statement? 
standing in front of all of your other colleagues and saying, look, they may all forsake you, Jesus, but I'm not going to forsake you. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, Peter, that this night before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And not to be outdone, so said all the disciples. And yet, just hours later, maybe not even hours, Jesus is arrested in the garden, and then we go on to read of this pitiful failure. Peter follows Jesus as he's being taken away. He's far enough away so that he's not going to get arrested, but he's close enough so that he can see where they're taking Jesus. And they come into this courtyard, and the Bible says, Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down to tether, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. Now listen to this part. Then after about an hour had passed, it's like God gave him a timeout. He could see this spinning out of control and called a timeout, gave him an hour to think about it. Hey, I've already denied him twice. He said I would deny him a third time. I better be on my guard. You know, you would think he was ready, but no. Because another confidently affirmed an hour later saying, yes, you certainly are one of his Because you are a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately while he was still speaking those words, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Epic, devastating failure. And yet many of you know that Peter would not only recover, but Peter would go on to be one of the greatest leaders within the Christian faith. And it often really does make you think, why why was he able to overcome this when Judas just could not handle it and committed suicide? I have to believe that what kept him anchored was something else that Jesus said to Peter in the upper room that night when he turned to him and said, Peter, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat, and I'm going to let him. But Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you return... You'll strengthen your brethren. And I just have to think that as Peter is grieving, as he's weeping bitterly over his failure in that moment, that literally he was anchored in this one thought. Jesus said that he was praying for me, that my faith would not fail, and that I would recover. And I'm going to hold on. I don't know how, but God is going to restore me one day. And I have to believe in my heart that there may be some of you right now that are drifting away from your first love. You have a fondness and affection for the Lord, but you know even as I'm speaking that that selfless, self-denying love is gone in your own life. You're drifting, but I believe that God brought you here today to hear me say to you that he is praying for you because he ever lives to make intercession for you. And he's praying that your faith would not fail and that you would return in Jesus' mighty name. And I pray that you even return today for his glory and for his honor alone.
Peter's return came in John 21. When he would return to the Lord on the beach of Galilee. And this is what we read in John 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And in this way, he showed himself. I love those words. In this way, he showed himself. My, my heart locked in on those words this week. You know, as we go through this, you're going to see that the disciples, there were seven of them all together at this point. That they were very frustrated. And, and I think that one of the reasons they were frustrated is because Jesus didn't come when he said he would come to them. He did. He was just late, though Jesus is never late. You, you do know that, right? Jesus, he may not come when you want him to, but he's never late. I, I can guarantee you this. But he didn't come when they wanted him to. He didn't come the way they wanted him to come to him. They had put Jesus in a box, and when he didn't behave the way they had envisioned him coming to them, then they got frustrated. And it should remind every one of us that God always decides how and when he will reveal himself to each and every one of us. You and I do not determine how Christ comes. We do not determine when he will come, how he will come. He comes when he's ready and he will come when he wants to and he will come in just the way that he desires to. And you see that reflected. There are many people that think they can manipulate God. I mean, how many people have you met in life that will say to you, well, I know I need to give my life to Jesus, but I, there's some other things I want to do in my life right now. Some other people I want to be around, some other things I want to do. And when I'm good and ready, then I'm going to come to the Lord as if you could determine when salvation comes. This is why the Bible says today is the acceptable day of salvation. If you hear him calling you now, now is the time to come to him because there are no guarantees of tomorrow. Can you hear me today, folks? That's, we have to understand. And even when we're drifting in our own relationship with the Lord, it is imperative that when we hear the word of the Lord speaking to us, that we don't delay, that we move now. I was reminded this past week of Elijah and you remember the story of Elijah. He was running for his life and he ran so far that he went into a mountain, ended up in a cave, feeling sorry for himself. He's so stressed out. He's so depressed. He's so discouraged that he's almost suicidal, even praying, Lord, take me now. And he just needs a word from God. And the Bible says that suddenly there was a violent wind that came ripping through the mountain and tore up the rocks. But God was not in the wind. And then there was an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was lightning that led to a fire, but God was not in the lightning nor the fire. But after this, the Bible says, a still, small voice. I love that. The Lord speaks to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing? And Elijah realized that he'd been so self-absorbed that he'd left his first love. Folks, listen to me. I've been in Pentecost all of my life. And I have been in the energetic, dynamic, explosive services. And I love them. I'm Pentecostal through and through. And I have told you, and I don't know if it's just a season that we're in. I, I, I just have to give it all to the Lord. And all I've got to try to do is be on fire and not worry about where everybody else is. I want... 
powerful, dynamic services. And I, I love that. But can I just tell you what's kept me for the last 44 years in my walk with the Lord have not been those high, dramatic services. It's been the still, small voice of the Lord that came unexpectedly in my life. What has kept me for 44 years is those times when I've been driving in the car and all of a sudden the presence of the Lord came upon me and just said to me, Kurt, because he doesn't call me pastor, Kurt, (laughs) where are you? What are you doing? Because there have been times even in my own life where I've drifted from that first love. And it's been more about me than it's been about him. He goes on in verse 3 and it says, Simon Peter said to him, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we're going with you also. And they went out and immediately got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. (laughs) Now, without going into a long explanation, I'm just going to tell you that what seems to be conveyed in those words, I'm going fishing, is an act of permanency. It's almost a defiant attitude. That I I am through with this, and I'm going back permanently to fishing. Like, I've just had enough of it. I'm through with it. I'm through faking it. I'm out of here. I'm going back to my old life. I'm going back to fishing. Peter's just frustrated, and probably he's just frustrated with himself because he had become such a bust at being a disciple. I mean, I'm just being honest. I mean, it had really been a rough road for Peter. Peter was this energetic visionary that just had a way of putting his foot in the mouth all the time. And you've just got to think that that's what he's thinking at this point. I keep putting my foot in my mouth. I go from extreme highs to extreme lows, sometimes within minutes of each other. I mean, who else does this? Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then 30 seconds later, he's saying, get away from me, Satan. He says, I'm a bust. I might as well go back to the one thing I do well, fishing. I might as well just go back fishing. And You know, I think that sometimes he was frustrated even with how things were going. Listen, can we just be really honest? Haven't you been frustrated sometimes with the way your life has gone? Like even serving the Lord, you don't want to blame him, but it's like, Why? I'm doing the best that I can, and yet, why is it not working the way that I thought it was going to work? And you've got to think that that's what Peter is thinking. I know he died, and I know he rose again, but I've only seen him twice since he rose from the dead. I don't know where this is going. I need some security in my life. I'm going to go back fishing. And the other disciples must have felt similar because they said, yay, we're going with you. And so they got in a boat, and they went out all night long and fished. And caught not one thing. Not a fish. Nothing. Caught nothing. And these aren't just guys that picked up fishing because they were bored. They were fishermen. Caught nothing all night long. But watch what happens next. When the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. They didn't recognize him. It was either spiritual or physical. We don't know. 
It could have been they were about 100 yards away from him. It was early in the morning. They might have just not been able to see who it was. It may be that Jesus just held it from their eyes. We don't know. But they didn't know it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, Hey, children, have you any food? Have you caught any fish? And that's the hardest thing for a fisherman to hear. And they answered him and said, No, we haven't caught anything. And Jesus said to them, Why don't you cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Wow. <laughs> now listen, fishing's not rocket science, okay? I'm not saying that there's not science involved in fishing, but it's not rocket science. I think we can all agree on that. And you don't need a doctorate in marine biology to know that if there are no fish on the left side of the boat, there are no fish on the right side of the boat. Can you hear my, you know, what I'm saying today? I mean, it's, you just don't need it. It's not like that. It's not like there is an invisible wall that the fish are all on this side of the lake and none on this side. It's not that way. And yet there comes a point when, when you become so frustrated to try anything. And so they cast their nets on the right side of the boat. And in a moment, they had more than they could even bring up onto the boat. They couldn't even get it up onto the boat. And the only difference between hours of fruitless fishing and one moment of getting more than they could even take in was obedience to Christ. Did you ever think about that? And it should be a reminder to every one of us that oftentimes the difference between success in any area of our life and failure is just obeying the Lord. You know, some of you are just toiling and you're working hard to find something that you're looking for and you haven't found anything. And it's because, like them, you're leaning on your own understanding. You're leaning on your own expertise rather than trusting the Lord. You're so full of yourself that you have no room to obey Him. What's amazing to me is, is that Jesus didn't condemn the activity. He didn't condemn that they went fishing. He just condemned them that they went fishing without his direction. And that's what happens with us. There's nothing wrong with wanting to get married, but some of you just keep casting your nets to the wrong side of the boat. Instead of hearing the word of the Lord, go over here, I've got someone for you. And some of you have labored and you have worked harder than you have ever labored and worked before trying to find that peace and that contentment, that fulfillment and that joy, but you still haven't found what you're looking for. And you say, I don't understand it. I have never put more effort into it in my life. But the reality is it's because you will not obey the Lord and God is frustrating your plans to bring you to a place where you will just say, Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. If you keep trying to make sense of life without his command, you'll keep finding nothing. You know what I believe personally? I believe that God commanded every one of the fish in that sea to get as far away from that boat as they could. So that literally... 
they would say you can run from God, but you cannot hide. For them to say, without me, you can do nothing. But with me, all things are possible. And, and I'm going to tell you, God's frustrating some of your lives. And you think it's the devil. And you have been beating up the devil for years. The devil is doing this. And, the, and God's up there saying, it isn't him. It's me. I'm frustrating your life. I'm frustrating your plans. I'm frustrating your purposes. Because they're not mine. And if you continue in them, they're going to destroy you. I'm frustrating so that finally you will cry out and say, God, hear my cry. And he will lead you where he wants you to be. In Jesus. So he goes on and says, Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that, it, that it was the Lord, he put, out his outer gar- put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. But the other disciple came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, 100 yards, dragging the net with fish. Now some of you may say, well, how did they know then? What was, what was it about that event that let them know that this was Jesus? Some of you know this. Because when Jesus first revealed himself to the disciples, it was under the same conditions. Remember that? In Luke chapter 11, Jesus came to the shore and got into Peter's boat and said, take me out a little bit. And he took him out and he preached to everyone that had gathered on the shore. And then at the end of the message, he said, Peter, why don't you throw out your nets for a catch? And he says, we've been fishing all night, Lord. We got nothing. And he says, why don't you just humor me? Do it this time. And they did, and they could not contain the fish that were in that net. And all of a sudden, the Lord has revealed himself again the second time to them. And they're like, this is Jesus. And what you may not recognize is that he actually brought them back to their first love. Because remember, in Luke chapter 11, when all those fish came in, he said, depart from me. I'm an evil man, O Lord. He saw the majesty of Christ and said, I'm not worthy. And he emptied himself. For that brief moment, he knew what agape love was all about. And so literally, in one moment of time, Jesus brought him right back to the first time he'd had that agape love for Christ. And then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And, some, and Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish with you, or which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. And Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. And yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you knowing that it was a Lord? And Jesus then came and took their bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. You know, such a a moving scene, such a, a tender scene of fellowship of and no doubt at this point peter is probably in light of his past failures feeling pretty good about everything right now i mean peter knows that he has failed the lord and it's so amazing how fickle can we be here is peter just hours before aggravated at jesus and says i'm going fishing i'm through with it then he reveals himself and he goes Forrest Gump, you know, just jumps right out of the boat and swims a hundred yards 
in to see Jesus. I mean, how fickle. But he comes in, and now he's just feeling good. I'm sitting here with Jesus, and we're having breakfast together on the beach. I mean, this is wonderful. But he's very content not dealing with what happened in the upper room. Can we just forget about that? I just want you right now. But Jesus isn't finished with him. Because when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And then Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, well, tend my sheep. And then he said the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Let me tell you, this is only a scene that could be recreated by Christ. Because in the first scene, he brings them back to their first love. In the second scene, he actually brings him back to when he denied Jesus three times. Because the last time that Peter had been in front of a fire in close proximity to Jesus, he had denied on three separate occasions that he ever knew Jesus. Jesus was bringing him back to his failure. And I thought about this, and it, and it just occurred to me that Peter represents many people I have met throughout my life who have had failures, who have walked away from their love for the Lord, that have walked away from that real passion for Christ. But they want to come back and pretend like nothing happened. I mean, let, let's be honest. I mean, Peter just came back and, hey, I'm just going to pretend that that thing never took place. I just want... He represents the crowd that wants breakfast without brokenness. The crowd that wants relationship without repentance. The crowd that wants communion without confession. And if there is one thing that we need to learn today, you cannot move into the future until you first deal with your past. That's hard. Because today, don't we do, we just want that general, forgive me, Lord. But we never want to deal with it right down to the place where it's rooted out of our lives. Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him because Peter needed to deal with each sin individually so that the cycle of denial could finally be broken in his life once and for all. It wasn't just a general, forgive me, Lord. He had to go through all three times that he denied because there was, there was something in Peter that had to be broken. And there are a lot of times we just want a generalized prayer rather than going back and dealing with each one of these. Peter had deliberately and intentionally three times violated the word of the Lord. And Jesus says, now you've got to deal with them. And he did. But the critical issue here is that word love. Because again, Jesus begins with, do you love me more than these? More than 
all of these things? Do you love me more than you love the disciples? Do you love me more than fishing? Do you love me more than boats? Do you love me more than the Sea of Galilee? Do you love me more than your life? I need to know, do you love me that way? And Peter answered and said, you know that I love you. Now, you can't catch it in the English because we only have the one word. But when he asked him, do you love me? He asked him, do you agape me? Do you love me selflessly? Do you agape me? And Peter, when he said, you know I love you, said, you know that I phileo you. You know that I love you like a brother. You know that I love you like a friend. That's important. Evidently, Peter was humbled enough by his failure that he could not claim to have the supreme love. So he just says, well, I know I can't go there, but I at least love you like a brother. I at least love you like a really close friend. So then Jesus asked him a second time, do you agape me? And again, Peter responds, Lord, I phileo you. I love you like a friend. And then the third time, this is so important, the third time he says, this is Jesus, do you phileo me? Do you love me like a friend? And the Bible says that hearing that, Peter grieved in his heart. Why was he grieved? First of all, I believe he grieved because it was at that third moment that he realized what Jesus was doing, that he was taking him back to all three denials. And he realized that Jesus was leading him in the path of repentance. And this is when he was grieved with a, with a, uh, a godly sorrow and was right. But he also grieved because when Jesus asked him that third time, do you phileo me? Do you love me like a friend? What he was actually saying is, do you really love me like a friend? Saying, I know that you tell me you love me like a friend, but Peter, the reality is, you don't even love me that way. And he was grieved because all of a sudden he realized, I've deceived myself. It's been a long time since I loved Jesus in a disinterested manner. And that's why his response was, Lord, you know all things. What he was saying is, I can't fool you. I can't deceive you. I can lie to you, but I can't, I can't get away with it because you know the truth. You know my heart. And in that confession, he was restored to the Lord that day. And by the grace of God, just 10 days later, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he led 3,000 people to Christ on that first day. And a number of years later, he would look at the executioner who would come to take him and said, I'm not worthy to die the way my Savior did. Crucify me upside down. I want to ask you again, do you love him? Do you? If, if we were to examine your motives, if we were to examine your life and how you live it, would your life reflect 
a self-denying, self-sacrificing love for Jesus? Or would there always be strings attached? Peter's response was the best. You know all things. You can deceive yourself, but you can't deceive the Lord. There is only one love that is acceptable to him. It is that selfless love. And I pray that today we come back to him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Bless the Lord. I don't know why the hour's late. I went longer than I typically do.